to another base training podcast. Um, this week we have got a guest on. Um, I'll let him introduce himself in a minute. And what we're going to be talking about is uh, pain and exercise and a different perspective upon it. Um, as always, though, you can find more information about us at www.base.training. You can also um, find us on Instagram at Base Training UK. And you can find myself on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Lee Carter UK. Will, where can everyone find you? Um, so they can find me on Instagram at coach underscore Will underscore Strathdee. I'm on LinkedIn, it's Will Strathdee. Facebook is Will Strathdee Health and Fitness Coach. Awesome. So our guest today is Mr. Greg Mack. I uh, recently spent some time uh, at his facility in Ohio in America. Um, just learning his approach and learning his perspective and uh, trying to soak up some knowledge and I can honestly say that um, my mind has been altered uh, <laughs> some would say blown um, and it's given me a lot to think about uh, and, a, and it was a completely different approach to anyone that I've come across in, in the fitness industry so uh, Greg why don't you introduce yourself to us where everyone can find you oh, okay great thanks Lee and appreciate it nice to be with you too as well Will um, yeah, you can find me uh, on a Facebook page, Exercise Professional Education, www.exerciseproed.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under the same moniker and uh, Instagram, again, Exercise Pro Ed. And LinkedIn, I've got a personal account, Greg Mack, uh, that is also I use for Exercise Professional Education. So you can get information from there, and uh, hopefully you'll jump in there and join us in our ongoing discourse about exercise. Yeah, I've recently been introduced to the Exercise Explorers Club, which I love the name of. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, pain and exercise and a new perspective. What is that perspective, Greg? Like, how, what, where does that come from? Where, where have you built that perspective? Mm. Yeah, the uh, relationship between pain and exercise uh, really comes from um, my in, my training, my formal academic training in engineering and physics and science and ongoing studies uh, in, in those areas, uh, along with some other areas of philosophy. Um, and you know what, where I'm at now essentially is uh, similar to where I think modern physics is in terms of um, looking at nature as simply information. And I've even heard physicists call the laws of thermodynamics, especially the conservation law, the conservation of information uh, versus the idea of the conf- conservation of energy. And so I thought that's interesting. And given our modern world of information processing and how important information is, um, I've taken that idea on with the human body uh, and that it's essentially not just information itself as a, as a functional mass of tissue, but that it's an incredible processor and generator of information. And some of the research I've been reading uh, and on pain science, if you want to call it that, um, although I think somewhat that could be a little bit of a misnomer, right? Science is about studying objective reality and 
pain is pain is a a very subjective experience. Um, there is no there is no tangible objective thing called pain that you can see in someone's body and pull it out or put a shot in it. It's actually a conclusion, as I understand it now, of the central nervous system of the cortex. Given all the information that's available to it, um, it'll conclude that there's a problem. Um, and then the person, if they know the word pain in their vocabulary, will, cho- will choose to use the word pain to describe their sensation. Um, whether it's local, they can point to a geographical point on their body, um, or it's emotional, where they just give you the general sense of of emotional pain. And so the word pain is just a word um, to attempt to convey a, a sensation a, a human experiences subjectively. So given that, given that platform for the idea of pain, um, exercise, uh, again, based on the definition that I work under, uh, is really about changing the information in the body and giving it new information. And in some cases, uh, you can exercise and stimulate the body and generate very specific kinds of information that get processed by the entire system. And the brain might conclude with the new information given to it by exercise that uh, it no longer needs to use the word pain to describe a sensation and the sensation might go away. And so that's kind of the fundamental idea behind it, Lee. Yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting that like there's an ability, like when people sense pain, especially in like a local area, um, you, you, what it sounds like you're alluding to is that there's an ability to change that information. Apparently so, yeah. And, and, so, and I mean, we've known for a while, right? And the research is catching up a little bit on this idea that movement um, and, and specifically now exercise, you know, in a general context, you know, can help people feel better and, and feeling better, you know, seems to me a description, a description of the, the subjective information set uh, that the conclusion is I don't have anything bad to report. Right. <laughs> so, so wellness can actually, you know, take on the, the definition of the absence of sensations you don't like. Yeah, I think that's in, that's important, is it? It's uh, it's often that m- most people aren't going through their day without some sort of pain. Do you think Do you think that's possible? Yes, I, I, I do. I mean, I've gone through long periods of time where I, I did not experience, you know, sensations I didn't like and choose the word pain. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I think there are there are uh, folks who do. Um, now again, you know, pain such an elusive idea. Unless, unless of course you see a direct cause. I mean, if someone sticks an ice pick in your head or your leg or something, you know, you know, you know why it hurts, right? Um, and, and that makes sense. But there's also the antithesis of that. I mean, I've seen documentaries where, you know, somebody walks into an emergency room with a spike sticking out of their skull, and they have no pain. And so, and so, this is what's very unusual about this this idea that 
used to be so pervasive that there was always direct cause-effect relationship between tissue, biological material damage, must equal pain. This is no longer, this is not the case. It's not true. No, I heard just before this, um, when it comes to interventions, as you kind of alluded to there, just before this podcast, I was just doing a little bit of reading, just Googling on Google Scholar, um, just exercise plus pain, and it comes up, low back pain is a common one. And yes. it, it's, it's still um, being pushed out there that stretching, um, the massage, along with exercise uh, is, is, is the fix. But the commonality seems to be between all these studies is exercise. What drew you to that conclusion? Um, yeah, I appreciate that reference because um, it, mainly, it mainly was my own experience as a practitioner in the field uh, because my own practice has been focused on attaching my, my practice of exercise and fitness and exercise to medical process. And so I've been dealing with people that have had any number of diseases and dysfunctions for my whole career now, almost 30 years in a variety of settings, chiropractic, physical therapy, hospital settings. I mean, I've, I, I took patients from pain physicians who were treating, you know, intractable pain with all kinds of crazy pumps and drugs. And, and so my whole career has been based on this idea of, of applying exercise process, you know, in the face of disease, um, sometimes to try to help manage the disease or be a part of the process. Uh, and what we found over time, again, at least anecdotally, was just getting someone exercising and stimulating their their muscular system, their contraction and control system, we call it. They started reporting less pain or pain resolution. And so then I started looking at the research and started to see little glimpses here and there of, wait a minute, there's people who exercise no matter what kind of pain or location of pain they're reporting by golly it's above the chance level in many of these studies it works it helps to relieve pain yeah so an example that, that lee was uh, kind of giving me yesterday based on like what you guys were talking about was um it's quite a random one. Like if someone has shoulder pain, if you work on their uh, hip flexion, that could remove the pain. But how is there a correlation between exercise in one area of the body and removing pain in another area of the body? Yeah, that's that's a very strange thing, right? And this this goes to the heart of, I think you know the what's been a, a driving philosophical understanding of the body um, and, and the methodology called local pain must mean local problem and there, therefore all attention and treatment must be focused locally on where the human being geographically points to or reports pain and sometimes this is obviously this is the case I, I clearly there, there are cases like this but often what we see is, especially with musculoskeletal issues associated with chronic problems and compensation and dysfunction and all these other words to describe, 
you know, losses or changes or aberrations in someone's control system. Um, the key word there being system, because the definition of system, as I understand it, again, as an engineer operating complicated systems, nuclear reactor systems, the systems are interdependent, interconnected, interacting entities. And that means any, any part of a system has the potential to influence any other part because of this interconnected, interdependent interactivity. And so if that's really true, then it shouldn't surprise us when we're working with what we think is a, a, a local problem or a local part of the system that's remote or has some distance from where the sensation of pain is being reported, having the ability to influence the information such that the system now concludes, oh, with this new information, we don't need to conclude pain anymore. And, and that can have analgesic effects, short-term effects, and that's fine. Um, but what amazes me is some of the really long-term implications and improvements that we see. I mean, just, it just it just happened this morning to me with a client. So it happens every day in my practice. And, and it's hard for the consumer to get their head around that wheel. Like, wait a minute. I'm telling you about my heel problem, and you're working up in my back and my hip. And then why does my heel feel better? You didn't touch it. Yeah, that's, that's the thing that probably um, for me and probably a lot of other people in the industry is the bit that's uh, the most hard to understand, but it does make sense when you talk about how the systems do interact with each other. Yes, the information is flowing and centralizing in the spinal cord and up into the into the brain and being edited and revised through the hypothalamus and the other structures there in the brainstem, you know, that, that are filtering and trying to help the organism make sense of the massive amount of information that's coming in. I mean, most of the information that comes into our systems is, is ignored. <laughs> so uh, we'd be overwhelmed if we had to you know, be consciously aware of every information bit that was, that was coming in that we had to tend to. Um, and, and so the way that the way that our brain and nervous system thinks about itself, I don't think is the way we think about it at all. I think it's, uh, um, we, we've gotten off track and, 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 and we want to, and we want to look at the whole system. Um, and because that's all we can observe anyway, right? Well, we, we really can't observe any individual piece of the system in total isolation from anything else. We can't separate these things. So. Yeah. So you mentioned that, um, that exercise has a big, big uh, impact upon that. What was it that drew you to or allowed you to come up with the process that you had to, or I don't want to say isolate the pain, but I necessarily isolate the problem within the system. Yeah, well, emphasis, right, would be yeah, the word I, we'd probably yeah. use, right? Em emphasize a particular aspect mechanically, you know, through physics, uh, kinetics analysis, and say, let's go ahead and, and see if we can set you up in some scenario we call configuration, some postural orientation under under some conditions of, of torque or force application. 
and and make your system or have your system react and try to try to manage that you know what we call perturbation so a lot of my thinking comes clearly from my engineering training and, and being a systems operator and working on systems and 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 understanding that information is king um, and that in order to understand like you know I'm, I'm in a nuclear fast attack submarine operating the primary secondary power plant systems an immensely complicated machine but not even close to as complicated as the human body and we had all kinds of gauges and levels to constantly be reading and recording to try to figure out the state of the plant and that when we would change something like the the speed or acceleration of the submarine or we'd go deeper or shallower this would alter the conditions of the plant and we had to monitor that by looking at a a hundred thousand different parts of information right thousand different gauges that were giving us pressures and temperatures and levels and and try to understand how all these individual pieces were coordinating themselves um, to keep the the overall plant in a particular state or changing in, in state and so that idea has always stuck with me and so i look at the body again as the same same basic idea from a simile perspective it's an operating system um, that has information flowing through it all the time and i'm trying to read it I, I i just can't stick all kinds of gauges in you to get to get all kinds of readings i, I have to look at you know how you operate your gross aggregate output in terms of control motor control in this case to give me a sense of um, how how well you can access and generate information you need in changing environmental conditions and so those give me critical clues about where an individual may have have lost or maybe never had it i don't know um the ability to control themselves by our definitions of that and then looking at the science the hard science about nervous system function and muscle control and I mean, there's tons of a priori information we can lean on there to help inform our understanding of how the system can express itself from a motor point of view and find out where somebody voluntarily loses motor output and give that back to them through a motor learning process and which changes the information state and what happens they feel better and what does feel better mean they no longer have sensations they don't like it's crazy. You mentioned perturbation, um, and one of the things I took away from our my, my week over at your facility was that perturbation is is really one of the only ways that you can test the system correctly or uh, properly, should I say? How did you come across that? Well, again, that's uh, uh, that's the mechanical engineering definition of system stability. Yeah, the only way we know the only way we know a system is truly stable is to, to perturb it to to purposefully try to change it or alter its current state and then see how it reacts right this is why you have negative feedback systems that primarily dominate many systems um, because the system's trying to keep keep energy changes or state changes from running away and being out of control and control is expressed by 
attenuating uh, these system state changes and not letting them run away and get away from you. So the system systems tend to, and you look at thermodynamics, you look at physics, you look at mathematics. I mean, equilibrium and equilibrium states um, are a key defining feature of all systems. The question, the question is, how do we know a system is is in equilibrium? And then two, how do we know how well it it can move away and restore its equilibrium? Because that's clearly, um, almost axiomatically, an indicator of the system's capability and health. When when you let your foot off the accelerator in your car, what are you expecting? The, the car to come to rest eventually. And when you put your foot on the accelerator, you're expecting the car to go and change its state, right? And so state change is the key idea there. And that this is fundamental to thermodynamics. Yeah. So one of the things that um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast will probably start thinking is that you're talking about like rehabbing from injuries and that you're an injury therapist or a physiotherapist. How does your approach, like given your, uh, the title of this program, A New Perspective, um, how does your approach differ to the sort of traditional pain treatment methods, in quote marks? Um, and yeah, I, I suppose that's the question. Yeah, so it's a good one because these are uh, these aren't clean lines, right? Prehab and rehab, and we've coined a to- term here called prohabilitation. So you have prehabilitation and rehabilitation, and now prohabilitation, and and all these all these ideas. Again, you know, in- injury is a state, right? Some particular part of the material continuum. If we're looking at mechanical injury. Um, has altered to the point where there's inflammatory response, the immune system responds, and, and there's some kind of negative change in capability. Well, I, you know, I, I don't treat injury here. So, so that's one. I don't say, oh, you, you've injured your Achilles, so we're going to treat your Achilles tendon. Um, All I do is I find out, okay, what's the current – given that there's been some negative event in you, how has it affected your system? And wherever their system demonstrates um, a loss of quality of control, which is where we function mostly qualitatively, and we have objective ways quantitatively to, to reference uh, control. But um, and then I just start systematically giving that back to them, um, and that tends to improve improve their state, which makes them feel better. But I'm not trying to do anything like directly to treat the inflammatory response of the local material like a torn Achilles or a bicep tendonitis or something like that um, where I'm applying ultrasound or heat or ice or iontophoresis or I, I don't do that. I, I don't have those modalities. I don't think about it that way. I don't put cortisone shots into stuff. I, re- I assess and restore the quality of someone's voluntary control throughout their system where we can find it. And if that helps them and whatever their local injury is, fantastic. And, and it often does, interestingly enough. Yeah, um, seen it in the short period of time that I was out there. Um, I'm still trying to get my head around it. <laughs> Annoyingly. Uh, one of the things is, is that 
Like, why? Why do you think that your approach has differed so? Like, it, it has kind of flipped things on its head, I suppose, and it's it's veered off from the traditional uh, and the common uh, is now of that rehab therapy, whatever you want to call it. Um, why do you think that the traditional is going down the route it is? And they're, they're still advocating stretching, they're still advocating foam rolling, despite a strong body of evidence to suggest that that's even icing suggests that that's not the probably not the best approach. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, it's a good question, and I've thought about it lots of different times, been in, you know, philosophical discussions about this. And the courses I teach, you know, go deeply into. The philosophy of body and, and, and its influence on uh, methodology and it's critical. I don't think most people realize that that their their philosophical construct, the way the way that they think about the body, their body view, we call it, um, it's actually informing their decision making and their interventional strategies. And so, again, because because we have an internal map in our brains of our body, right, a somatic map spatial temporal map you know we we feel our brain concludes there's a sensation in our knee we don't like and and you might use the word tightness and use you know the word tightness is used to describe many different material issues uh, and nervous system issues Um, and and so because of the local experience of that it's it's natural to want to, I think, rub that and, and treat that because that's where we think the problem is, because that's what the system's, you know, f- flagging for us. Um, as well as, you know, the fact that in science, reductionism uh, has has ruled the day for a long time. And, and reductionism has definitely served, served, you know, our epistemological pursuits tremendously it's it's nice to get smaller and smaller right and and what's this made out of and how many pieces are involved in this and what are these individual pieces made out of and you know and and we've discovered obviously incredible things um but but i think we've gotten lost there and now we have to zoom back out and look uh, at the whole system because really total system aggregate output in a complex systems theory perspective um, needs to be studied because we we can't it's called emergence right emergent theory we we can't (laughs) we can't um, explain how someone moves as a total system doing a lunge or a squat or throwing something by by studying the cartilage in their elbow and understanding the cart the cartilage can't tell us anything about how the total system produces an aggregate output response. And so by studying and looking at aggregate output response, um, we can start to get a, a sense of how the system is coordinating its its internal processes to produce or not produce a, a particular motor output. Um, and so that's, you know, that's really, you know, the thrust complex systems theory and, and understanding that as human beings observing another person move or explain or describe some sensation in their body, uh, we can't see hardly anything empirically about that. 
Yeah, definitely can't can't measure it, unfortunately. Um, no. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about voluntary uh, motor control. Um, I, I took a few things away again, as I said, from the week that I spent with you and the time that's been learning from you, and that seems to be one of the key, if not probably the biggest key, um, to pain reduction and pain management potentially and exercise uh, or, or exercise in control over your body and control over your life I suppose could you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by that and how that transfers over to um, involuntary action yeah I, yeah so voluntariness right is is really what I'm interacting. I mean, when I'm watching someone else or observing someone, I'm observing their voluntariness, right? Um, you know, which is again a gross aggregate expression. There are many involuntary uh, actions going on inside the system that are producing the gross voluntary output. Um, but it's more, in my mind, a matter of ownership. And again, the the system state. When the system state has the information it needs and is used to receiving or knows how to use, it seems to me that the system would be in a more certain, a more relaxed, a more capable state. And it wouldn't need to have all these alarms going off because it can voluntarily access, use, and regulate and govern its capabilities. And so when I... I mean, that's what I like certainty that like, that's why we like certainty uh, in our worlds. That's why we like a home and a place where we go where everything's the same and we know everything is and, and we can relax there because there's no uncertainty. Um, and so that relationship between certainty uh, or relative certainty uh, and the ability to, you know, reduce error, which just means in my, in my mind, motor control and motor learning, if, if I want to produce, if I internally create a representation of how I want to produce a motor output, and then I go to produce that output, and then I compare the actual motor output production to what I internally created in my mind about it, and those two things are pretty darn close, I'm saying there wasn't any error, error there, that's what I wanted to do, that everything's good. But if there's large error between what I want to do, before I do it. And then I actually compared what I actually did based on the information coming back into my system about that. And there's a big error. Well, now there's a problem and the system knows it problem. And so uh, I'm trying to reduce that. So how, what is the mechanism by which voluntary control um, carries over into involuntary control because they, they sound like two different things to like the average person they do and and it's unfortunate because you know involuntariness and any involuntary motor act is still formulated and launched from the same material platform that voluntary motor output is produced from right i, I mean they're not like coming from two separate systems and, and, and so, you know, whether or not there are completely different neural tracks or information flows 
for involuntary activity versus voluntary activity. I, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I don't see that in the research and what the neurophysiologists and neuroscientists are saying is, is I, I, the same neural communication pathways that might produce involuntariness um, overlap with the same information pathways that use voluntariness or that voluntariness uses, right? So, you know, like you look at something like respiration where there's a certain involuntariness to the respiratory system where I'm breathing and I don't even think about it because it's almost, it's involuntary, but I can interact with it and change my respiration voluntarily by holding my breath or choosing to breathe faster or moving my diaphragm, you know, farther or exhaling longer or whatever, which will now alter the involuntary nature of my respiratory system. And so this is how people improve their involuntary respiratory system is by what? Interacting with it through voluntary motor output. I suppose it begs as an, exa- as an example. Yeah, I suppose it begs the question then: is is there such a thing as involuntary motor control? Uh, or because if if remaining still is a uh, a process of or a voluntary process, like your ability to stay still, like is is do they even exist? Should we even be calling it voluntary or involuntary control? Well, again, I, I think that. It it's occurs across an overlapping continuum. I mean, blink, blinking my eyes is, is involuntary, but then again, like with respiration, I can now choose to blink faster or try to keep my eyes from blinking, but eventually, eventually my nervous system is going to overcome my voluntariness and I'm going to blink. Just like me holding my breath, eventually my involuntariness is going to overcome my voluntariness to breathe. Yeah. So I still think that distinction can be made, but that it's not as clear and clean and separated as we might think. Yeah, definitely not. Um, one of the examples you gave when I was over yours is um, like Huntington's and Parkinson's disease, that, that state yeah, of in- right. inhibition. So, yeah, so that's it. That's what's interesting about the system is, and I'm not saying there isn't positive feedback loops in it. There, there are some clearly, but, but most of the system, this is the definition of homeostasis, right? I mean, it's, it's defined by negative feedback loops trying to say, look, you know, no matter what changes in condition or environmental condition or state, eventually we want you back to this mean level of heart rate, blood pressure body temperature right and so it's always trying to restrict excursion and, and level it off um and, and bring the system back to some some low lower energy lower energy state so okay that's good and and the ability to not move is as much a skill as the ability to move and is inherent in the system's design apparently Okay, excellent. so I wanted to. So we get a lot of people that are fitness professionals um, listen to this show as well. So I wanted to kind of direct some of the content towards them. 
my, when I first came across this uh, sort of approach, I was sitting there thinking, well, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a physio, like, how is this going to help me? How can, it, how can this, how is this applied to uh, a personal trainer in a normal gym um, that is working with clients that are in pain, that are potentially overweight or underweight, that need to get healthier and improve their well-being. How can they utilize some of these things? Well, well, again, I mean, you just said it. What's well-being? What's healthier? I, I liked your, your definition of well-being earlier, on your sort of loose one, the absence of um, sensations you don't like. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, so, you know, and clearly, I mean, trainers, they should be working with the medical community because there can be any number of disease states and problems and, and their scope of practice issue here. I mean, you know, you got to work with doctors and therapists who, who, who can look and order tests and see what's going on inside because there could be some really bad stuff going on. Um, but if they're done with you and medicine's not sure and therapy's over and and there's nothing seriously, you know, broken. There's not an alien growing inside of you. And, um, you know, these are subjective things that are associated with movement and control of movement. Um, you know, that starts to get into the wheelhouse of, of the trainer. What's interesting is how the word pain in any language has been elevated to have this special, it's a special case of language where now, when, this, when the human decides to use the word pain, all of a sudden we're in some new land and, and, and some new stuff. Discomfort doesn't take this on. Tightness doesn't take this on. Achiness doesn't take this on. Soreness doesn't take on the intense meaning of the word pain and how as soon as someone chooses to use that word, now all of a sudden we have to shut everything down and no one's allowed to do anything anymore. I, I think this is this is the real difficult challenge for medical providers as well uh, to try to figure out how this works and, and treating you know a, a word like pain as if it's a thing in the body that can be removed, like a tooth or a bone or a fingernail. It's not. It's not that. Um, and so a trainer can, can actually help somebody enjoy and get more out of the exercise process if they're able to effectively through exercise and manipulating control and helping someone learn to control themselves better, make the exercise experience more comfortable and help somebody actually achieve what they want from exercise, which is wellness, which is health which is control over their body. And I think this is well within the, the uh, ability of trainers and, and that they should be a part of the solution and not just try to work around or ignore it or treat it like a medical doctor is or a therapist who's looking at the local symptom, local problem, local treatment idea. Um, they shouldn't be diagnosing anything. They should just be saying, look, let me find out where you've got some control issues qualitatively and compare that to some things we can measure, like how far you move and how much weight you use and all that stuff and see if we can make that better. And if in that process, their pain, they no longer report pain. That's a win for everybody. 
one of the uh, things that I was interested in, what didn't, um, caught me by surprise was the amount of time with your clients that you're spending on a table. I know it's just to elevate them from the floor, but spending on a table. And traditionally, again, a PT will think, well, if, if they're on a table, this is the setting and this is the expertise of a physiotherapist. And what I come to conclude was that it was more about figuring out what level of exercise is needed for that person to see a response. And I, when you worked on, on, on my system, um, I didn't need much to start getting a real um, effective response from the dose that you were giving me. How, do you think there's been a, a, um, uh, a misguided push towards getting people to like do exercises as it's traditionally seen, lifting dumbbells, lifting weights, and instead of going, okay, well, you, a, a practitioner, a PT professional can use their hands and provide resistance to a, to a client. Correct. I, yeah, again, I think that this is all convoluted and, and, and ego and turf and um, uh, stereotypes and prejudices have all leaked in, you know, and just because there's a table for someone to lie on or sit on you know, doesn't mean automatically, oh, now they're in a therapy environment. And then as soon as they get off the table, they're not in a therapy environment. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? Um, and, and so all the table is, or uh, even they're called massage tables. Again, they're just tables with padding and vinyl on them. Um, it's just to make it more convenient to have the practitioner access um the, the person's control system and their segments without being on the floor. But what would be the difference of me, you know, putting a, a, a mat on a floor as a trainer and doing something to them there versus having a table up in the air and doing the same thing to them on a table versus on the floor and the floor, not a therapy situation. I put them on a table. It becomes therapy. It's ridiculous. It makes, it makes no sense. Yeah, I have. I have. That was uh, that was that was my thought. Like before, I kind of uh, come across this. this was, I was driving people towards uh, functionalism and functional fitness, and away from machines. And I kind of lost the value of machines until recently. And uh, what was it that drove you towards going? Okay, actually, um, these machines are pretty useful because I know your clinic is full of them, and you use them regularly. Yeah, because they provide an objective set of conditions, and and I can and I can emphasize a particular part of the system or set up new conditions. I mean, if a, if a client if a client can't stand for whatever reason because of a lower extremity problem or a problem with their back or some sensation they're reporting, does that mean they can't exercise? And, and if and if them lying down on their back puts them in a situation where they're like, okay, you know, I feel I feel better, I feel safer here, I have less sensations I don't like while I'm here. Well, then let's start the exercise there. I mean, why 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 force someone to do walking lunges and cleans and hold kettlebells over their head when when they're they don't like it. They're not comfortable, and their system doesn't like it. Having run a uh, 
a functional, what you would call functional, the traditional functional, what people view as functional fitness gym. I've experienced that a few times. People come in and they get the, the dose of exercise through this functional uh, exercise, like deadlifting, squatting, is just too much for them and they leave. Um, having Correct. a bad experience. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was even after doing a uh, a consultation, getting into their backstory, finding out who they are, what they've been through, and you think you're giving them a really low level of exercise and a stimulus, actually it's still too much for them. Yes. So I mean, we spend a tremendous amount of time in the coursework trying to help the practitioner understand how to come to understand state. What is the what is the starting state of the system versus just assuming it at some level based on a worldview or a, a body view or an exercise view uh, that has a philosophical construct like functionalism, which 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 packed into it is tons of bias. <laughs> so yeah, when you say functionalism. It, 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 it reminds me of like Scientology and like it's easy to get corralled into that um, like you said that biased world where you can't do anything else but free weight and body weight exercise you're not allowed to use um, uh, machines and you're kind of chastised for doing it correct yeah that's 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 when you know that you know your whatever your current exercise viewpoint has been chosen when when you're literally saying i'm going to take tools that are available to me off the table and not make them available to you right because the people that i work with or the view i have has demonized those things right i mean that's like saying i'm going to build a house but i don't like screwdrivers or saws those aren't good so i'm not going to use a screwdriver or a saw and then when I run into a situation where I need one and I'm trying to use a hammer to put a screw in because I don't believe in screwdrivers anymore well that's just dumb yeah <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah I've got some weird images going through my head of someone just trying to like chop a piece of wood with their hand um, no. <laughs> yeah you know it's like saws are terrible saws are dumb yeah, we're not, we don't use saws here yeah we, no. We're natural. We're organic. We use our hands to do everything because that's natural. How much is is biased or bias, should I say, affecting like the fitness industry as a whole, like from from oh, as you see it? It's terrible. It's it's terrible. But yeah, I think it's an, inf- an infection in many industries. Right, it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, you know, because in, in the absence of of of, of a decision process and, and the ability to collect information and critically think, we ha- we have to default to our biases. We don't we don't know what else to do. When, when you're in the land of uncertainty and you don't know how to function there, we create certainty superficially or artificially through bias. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that certainty again, given that the the system needs it. As such, it needs certainty, so it will create it wherever it can. Amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. Excellent stuff. Will, did you have any questions? Um, yes. Yeah, so, 
obviously that we, we put this podcast out to uh, people that obviously are probably looking for help. Um, so let's say someone listening to this is experiencing, let's use a bit of localised shoulder pain. Um, what would your be, advice be to them to find out where that is affecting the rest of their system? They have to explore their own movement. They have to start to find out by exploring how they move their arm and their shoulder and their back and their neck. How does everything else move? And they might start to find out, oh, wait a minute. I can't move my hip like on this side like I can on the other. Or when I when I move my spine, when I rotate my spine to the left, that that's hard to do. It feels very restricted. And so then I would tell them, go ahead and start exploring these areas and, and start to use your voluntariness to see if you can relearn or reaccess these limits. But it can be very difficult because the perturbation process um, helps accelerate locating the control problem. So. Yeah, I think it's again. It's important to reiterate that local pain doesn't always mean local problems. Uh, when it yeah. does, so, sometimes it is, yeah. but many times it's it's not. Or the the local problem is only a problem because somebody else isn't doing their job. And as soon as you get somebody else doing their job again, oh well, now that tissue or whatever's going on with that shoulder can chill out and not have to be so stressed as a material or whatever's going on with it, right? Excellent stuff. So if you could sum up your your perspective on um, exercise, how if you could do that, how would you do it or can you do it in a, in a short yeah. summary? Yeah. Yeah. Exercise which is right a, a stimulus a specific stimulation kind of my reader's digest definition here a stimulation or the removal of a stimulation to a to a biological system a neuromotor system with the intention of making a change to it that's what differentiates exercise from activities of daily living or recreational activities which can still you know, bestow health benefits. I don't want to say that, but what makes exercise unique in my mind and the definition that I'm using based on some work with my other colleagues um, here is there's an intentional, purposeful, specific direction of change trying to be made. And once you, once you pick that, well, then now you have to figure out what is the stimulation? Where am I going to apply it? How long am I going to apply it for? How much stimulation? We're talking about dosing now, right? And, and let alone, how am I going to know I'm changing what I want to change? And so exercise has to include, you know, these ideas because people hire trainers and coaches to do what? Change them. I mean, that's why they're giving you money and showing up. They want something changed. And so if that's the case, well, then exercise is the agent of change for them, uh, except don't put it in a box and realize that it's a, it's a very wide and broad continuum with many tools and many ways to create and apply it. I mean, exercise has become names and you have, and you have to do the name of the thing. 
right? And so you put together a, an arbitrary or pseudo-strategically constructed list and order of names of things. And with the name of the thing comes um, a prepackaged way it has to be done. And so that's what trainers have found themselves in because that's more certain for them. I just need to put together six names of exercises. Say we're going to squat, lunge, overhead press, and kettlebell swing. That's it. Six names that have kinematic um, prescriptions associated with them, and then you're supposed to do them. Um, and the problem is uh, every human being is totally unique. And they may not be able to do it as prescribed and shouldn't do it as prescribed. Let alone, is that the stimulation they need for the changes they want and the risk associated with that change and that stimulation? And so we didn't get a chance to talk about risk, but ultimately we're trying to attenuate that because that's that's the dirty secret in exercise. People are getting injured doing it. They're being hurt doing it. And if that's the case, I can't see that as a health-producing activity anymore. How how big a role does individualization play into attenuating risk and and and, and suppose getting rid of this this dirty secret? And um... uh, everybody's n one. Everybody's got to be treated individually yeah. at some point and assessed as an individual, and discussed as an individual. And looked at individually. Yeah. That's what I think. That's probably a good note to wrap up on. That's exactly what we promote: individualization, personalization. Uh, doesn't mean you can't do group stuff, but like you said, there has to be a large emphasis placed on it. I think, uh, from our view. Well, sure. I mean, that's the ironic thing about being called a personal trainer. <laughs> <laughs> Per, per, personal training has become non-personal. Yeah. Uh, all it means now is somebody who stands next to you while you exercise and counts reps. Yeah, we actually put out or about to put out a podcast on the current state of online personal training because that's what predominantly what we are. We are online, I suppose, personal trainers, um, and that actually what a lot of people are buying into is a template. And it's a template that that personal trainer has run themselves. They've seen success with it. So they're like, well, I've, if I've seen success with it, I'll sell it to everyone else. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's called a representative schema bias, I think. So, I, you know, to think that every, every, ordered, every ordered list of names of exercises and however they're supposed to be performed will produce and stimulate the exact changes in every human being is ridiculous. And again, this is why people are hurt, getting hurt. Yeah, definitely. Sweet. Okay, cool. Well, we've been pretty much an hour there, so I think we'll wrap it up. Um, for those that are still listening and those that are uh, working within the fitness industry and want to know more about the course that we've alluded to, um, what could you tell us a little bit about the, the Muscle System course, Greg? Well, there's, yeah, I've got a few courses. I, I have an exercise in pain, a new perspective course, a one-day course, which introduces uh, this, this, this way of thinking, because that's really what's unique about what we're doing. It's about thinking. I mean, we use dumbbells, we use rubber bands, we use machines, we use body weight 
we use Barb, we, we use all the tools that people would see. Um, but what, what we're doing is thinking about it completely differently and, and how we decide to do what we do and what went into that is the key difference. So it's about data collection, making critical observations and being like a natural field scientist um, in, in an unbiased way, collecting information and reporting it. And then uh, we use decision science to um, process that information and try to make a rational decision um, to start to make interventional changes. And so uh, the, the, full, the full course that we teach called Muscle System Specialist, which leads to certification if you want, teaches the entire continuum of how do you first talk to a stranger that you that just called you, walked in, or emailed you? What should you say? What should you not say? Because that's where everything begins in the relationship. To how to handle and qualify them for spending time in your face-to-face. And then how to decide you know, what to do in the initial baseline assessment, the data you should take. How to do the analysis of that information. How to build a profile and model so you can get critical um evidence and let the evidence guide you and corroborate that since it's primarily qualitative how to build a how to build a reasonable plan of, of care based on your baseline and then how to use all the all the tools available to you um, to help them regain voluntary control um, uh, and and figure out where you need to start because that's the hardest thing if you can't figure out great places to start well then every decision is relatively arbitrary you know, you can start with squats, start with bench, you can start with curls. Who cares how you start, right? Um, and so we want to start in a place that the system really needs us that's low risk. And so we teach how to do that, how to communicate with medical providers and doctors and therapists. That's that's fundamental. How to communicate this information to your clients so that hopefully you can, you know, engage them in a lifelong professional relationship. Uh, assessing and managing their motor control and their exercise programming for the rest of their life because you need to exercise the rest of your life. You can't just exercise for a couple months and stop for six years and think all the benefits you got are going to stick around. They're not. And so that's ultimately from a business perspective, um, we're trying to help people understand the importance of that. Then we teach a wide, a wide array of tools and screens and techniques to access all the various parts of the motor system we currently can think of, like the eyes and the neck and the tongue and th- things that you wouldn't even think of um, that could be affecting your client's control and output uh, and contributing to the sensation set that they're presenting that they don't like. So it's a very extensive course. Uh, if you're a serious-minded professional who likes to think, who wants to think, um, wants to get outside the box, the course is for you. So, Sweet. Excellent stuff. Cool. Um... Yeah, Will, did you have any more questions or anything you wanted to ask? Um, no. no. Excellent stuff. We'll wrap it up there then. So, um, Greg, appreciate you coming on the coming on the podcast. I'm sure we'll we'll get another one on the go soon. Um, and to all the listeners, if you're interested, remember you can head to um, exerciseprofessionaleducation.com if you want to want to look into Greg's courses. Uh, if not, we'll we'll speak to, or we'll be here next week. Tune in again. So. Peace Thanks, out. guys. Great, great talking to you. I really, really appreciate it.